Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Steve Macias and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Welcome to episode number 59 of the Out of the Question podcast. My name is Reverend Steve Macias, and I have here with me my co-host, Andrea Schwartz. Hi, Steve. How are you doing today? Good to be with you, Andrea. And our question today is, can true believers suffer from addictions? And I guess we have to go through what those terms mean. And to do that today, we have a very special guest, somebody who is qualified not just as somebody who is a Christian pastor, not somebody who's just a counselor, but somebody who is actively involved in counseling people uh, who are in situations that we would consider addictions. Our guest today is Pastor Yuri Brito of Providence Church in Pensacola, Florida, and I want to welcome you, Yuri. Steve and Andrew, real delight to be with you guys. I'm looking forward to this. Very good. And so today we're going to get into something that can be kind of sticky. You know, there's different extremes. People approach psychology and counseling, the role of the church, the role of uh, science from a variety of different perspectives. You know, we all have different pains and baggages that come with this. And so in this conversation, I want our listeners to understand that we are coming at this looking for not what Yuri's uh, opinion says about this or even going to Freud, but saying, does the Bible have a standard? Is there a Christian solution to mental health and addiction? And how do we understand this as true believers? And so, Andrea, uh, I think one of the questions is, is Christian counseling biblical? Is it Christian at all? Can something like psychology, be redeemed or used for the kingdom? And I think it's an important question because I run into a lot of faithful covenant members who desire to please God by obeying his word. And yet, when you live in a context of a society that more often than not is at war with God and his word, children in families get affected. And I have received more than a few calls from mothers concerned about some of their children's addictions, pornography being right up there. Then there's, you know, video games, social media, all these kinds of things. And so in a practical sense, I'm glad to have Yuri with us because if anything is true about the Bible, it has a theory. But if you can't take that theory and put it into practice, then really what good is it? And so Yuri, I was hoping you could start us off by telling us about some of maybe your credentials or your experiences, some type of uh, picture of, of what kind of involvement you've had in Christian counseling and pastoral counseling and studies or work you've done uh, related to this particular topic. Yeah, thank you uh, very much uh, for the question and, and for the opportunity. I have, um, for at least the last 10 years that I've been in pastoral work, been uniquely challenged with counseling situations, both within our church and outside our congregation. And Coming out of grad school uh, at a seminary in 2008, there is a, there's a, a level of confidence that comes to those early young pastors, and I confess I was there at that point, and uh, pastoral ministry very quickly disassembled any sense of construction I had about what pastoral labors are, what pastoral ministry is, and my confidence was dissolved very quickly right about years two and three. And I, at that point, became very concerned about offering the 
the level of guidance that I think would be more fruitful to the congregation, to my, to my people, and which, which raised another question in my mind, am I equipped to counsel my people well? And what I realized is that while seminary education provided a wonderful foundation for me theologically, I needed to go beyond the world of abstract and beyond the world of, of offering Bible verses as a way of answering, as a way of the, as end all to Christian counseling. And I need to do what my professor had taught me long ago, John Frame, who said that theology is the, can only becomes true theology when it is applied. And so I needed to, to use a metaphor here, I needed to remove the table out of my counseling room and pull up two chairs and have a more in-depth conversation and understanding of who I was counseling what was behind motivations and addictions or in sinful habits, and to really try to open my ears a lot more than my mouth. And that led me to a unique journey in the last 10 years where I've been able to uh, do some studies through the Association of Biblical Counselors, ABC, receive a one-year certificate, had a chance to go to Texas, interact with Paul Tripp and a couple of other men who were very, very instructive, and also a way, and also provided me an opportunity to dig a little bit deeper into some great works that have been written by Christian thinkers and even those outside the Christian tradition, and grasping a more holistic picture of who we're talking to, and that we are not mere uh, robots, and that the counseling right. enterprise is not just a kind of mechanical endeavor but is a very intimate, and anyone who has been involved in counseling knows that it drains your, it drains a part of your humanity. And if you don't have, if you're not fully invested in the gospel promises, your humanity can be drained in the possible in the in the process of helping somebody else's humanity. That's, that's right. a little bit of my background and my journey. That's great, and I think that you didn't mention it by name, but you went to Reformed Theological Seminary where you were studying with John Frame, and I think our listeners will appreciate that because. I think what I've appreciated about your perspective is that you've been uncompromising on those kind of foundational reformational principles. You know, you acknowledge that this is a, a spiritual issue, but you started to touch on this, that maybe that there was, maybe there wasn't enough in your seminary education about, you know, the cure of souls of how to care for individuals and their counseling. And so you've done these other things. And I've seen through your, you know, social media and your blog and, you know, different conferences you've spoken at, you have attempted to kind of bring other Reformed people into a, a more holistic and fully-orbed view of counseling. How would you begin a conversation on Christian counseling with somebody who is against psychology or against Christian counseling at all? How would you begin the conversation to say the Bible demands that we have some type of uh, relationship to deal with our sin issues beyond just simple confession? Yeah, that's a great question, Steve. I, I think I would begin where all good theology begins. I'll begin in, in Genesis chapter 1, and I would begin by telling anyone who's willing to listen that God created us in his image, and that we now live in a post-Genesis 3 world, and therefore, in, in many ways, we are dependent upon that grace just as Adam was dependent, but now we live in a fallen context where we've been affected by not only our environment, but we've been affected also by sinful people around us. We've been affected by sinful messages from our culture. And so we're bombarded with a post-Genesis 3 worldview, 
And now it is, in many ways, our duty through the revelation that God has made abundantly clear to us to restore our humanity in full dependence on the death, resurrection, ascension of our Lord and King Jesus. And, and what that implies, of course, is that we need to get away from a kind of pious approach to counseling where we are merely concerned about their souls and we need to realize that there is a that part of, of of being created in the image of God means that we are truly human, and what suffering does to many people is it takes away a bit of that humanity. They feel lost in the humanity that they have as a gift from God. And what we're trying to do is to uh, once again restore them to not only understand that that image can be restored but that God is fully invested in restoring that brokenness that is That's so right. much a part of our experience. And it's impossible for us to, to ignore the brokenness. You know, as a pastor myself, I see families, husbands, wives, the brokenness exists in our churches. And so we have to come up with a solution to it. And so obviously counseling has been historically one of the pastor's roles. You know, Rush to me actually has a whole book on the cure of souls where he talks right. about this role. The, the pastor is involved in repairing the soul. And I like how you mentioned this distinction between you know, a merely pious view and recognizing that creation and humanity affects the emotional and psychological part of you as well. And, and that really begs the question of, if we look back at the history of modern psychology, a lot of Christians are tempted to look at Freud or these other guys and and question their intentions or the motivations, their beliefs. You know, they weren't going to the scripture and looking for a, a science of psychology. How would you do that? How do you rectify or reconcile the different information about mental illness that's historically presented in psychology with the materials that you work with developing Christian tools as a pastor? I think we need to, you know, in, in the mail, I just got a, a, a wonderful, you would be very pleased about this, an 800 page book and some, some translations of Abraham Kuyper, you know, edited by uh, Jordan Baylor, Kuyper scholar. And Kuyper, of course, has developed throughout his lifetime a very, very rich and robust theology of common grace. And there are certain outside, uh, those outside the cup, there are some voices that are outside the church that have been given this extra dose of common grace, or as one scholar writes, they are, it's common grace and steroids, you know. And I think our, our general tendency sometimes is kind of, is so much to repudiate anything that comes outside the church or our evangelical tradition that we sometimes miss insights that are gifts from God that a Christian needs to not endorse 100%, but needs to gain from and put it in its proper context. And the only true context in which secular counseling can be restored and can be made new again or to be seen with with new eyes is the context of the biblical story. And so I think that's uh, one one clear example of this, of course, is uh, Jordan Peterson, who's done so much work in in, uh, young men and things of that nature. It's a wonderful resource. But I think we need to grasp the fact that these voices from outside the church are voices that are in some ways attempting to mimic the voice of Scripture, That's but right. it's incomplete. And so the Christian has a duty to bring in the entire arsenal of the biblical faith and world message, worldview message, and take these lessons and appropriate them into the Christian atmosphere and realize that only the Christian church 
can properly take these incomplete narratives and make them whole. And so I think that's a, that's one way to begin thinking about that process. That I, I, I think, think that's great. You know, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad you mentioned Jordan Peterson there too, because that's something that's really popular with, with folks right now. But if you look at his, his narratives, he has one that's like an evolutionary perspective on the lobster. Then he goes into biblical archetypes and they're really kind of you know, almost conflict and it begins to undermine, you know, the modern American Christians view of, of psychology or, or mental health, because I think what's the source of a lot of the animosity towards psychology or Christian counseling is that some folks have the view, and some psychologists mean to do this, that counseling is undermining the authority of the local church, that the pastor has some certain role to counsel and to console folks who are hurting, and that these you know, supra or parachurch organizations and scientific organizations are undermining the responsibility of the pastor, while at the same time, as you pointed out, our seminaries are not giving uh, the right tools or the right training for our pastors to be competent enough to counsel. So how would you go about that? How would you talk about uh, the authority of local churches, of individuals submitting to their, their pastors, of submitting to religious leaders for counseling, and really the, the readiness of local American pastors to be competent to counsel? Well, that, that's, that's another great question. And I, I, my first observation to that question, which I, I've heard in various forms, is that many pastors are not ready to do what the Puritans would call some kind of soul care. Many pastors are equipped theologically, and I speak mainly of our Reformed tradition. In other evangelical traditions, there's a lack even in that regard. But the Reformed tradition has a, a particular tradition of equipping pastors intellectually, theologically, and so on. And so you see a lot of that, but in many ways, uh, Reformed pastors lack this general ability to do what our Lord did, to sympathize with the weakness of those who are weak. And so the general tendency is to become either very mechanical about the way they approach counseling, or to offer some kind of theological jargon. You know, I remember hearing a, a Presbyterian minister say one evening that what counselees need to hear is not what is the problem with their sin, but they need to hear that Jesus died for their sins. And until they get to that point, they won't be able to understand their sins. I said, well, that's, that's, you know, that, that's lovely as theological language goes, but it really doesn't address the, the, the problem in the soul and the concerns of people who are suffering in our congregations. So the first thing I think pastors need to grasp when we're having a conversation about Christian counseling is that they are not enough that they are not enough, that their uh, fancy rhetoric, that their use of cliches, that their particular chosen Bible verse, you know, just as a, as a footnote here, I've been doing a lot of study on pastoral theology in the Reformed tradition. And in the Institutes, I came across this little section in Calvin, where Calvin essentially says, be cautious to use biblical language. Don't use it uh, flippantly. I thought, man, that's a, that's a really a, a fresh way of of thinking through these issues here. But when pastors think they are enough, what they usually mean is they are that they have the theological equipment to do what they think they can accomplish. And in reality, what they are missing in many ways is the ability to sympathize with the weakness of their parishioners. And so I think first and foremost, I want to put the responsibility in the local church because God has given us the church as the, um, what I, I would phrase, as a central focus of his kingdom endeavors. 
But secondly, I want to, I want pastors of these local congregations to be very aware that they are not fully equipped to deal with all the issues that come to uh, their front door in the congregation. And so just as a quick example of this, Steve, is, for instance, the work that is done in Christian literature that I feel fairly comfortable in saying I've read a large portion of the Christian literature when it comes to Christian counseling, the work, for example, of dealing with, uh, let's say, PTSD, what you see in Christian writings about dealing with certain traumas is virtually, when you look at the footnotes, there's a heavy dependence that they're having on secular literature. And so, and, and so when it comes to Christian literature on trauma or abuse, there's very little that is coming directly from Christian literature without the dependence of secular sources. So even Christians who are at the forefront of these battles are realizing, people like Ed Welch, for example, realizing that uh, there are some insights in the secular world that have been very fruitful in dissecting the damage done to certain individuals in the church and outside the church. We are in need of some help and guidance. But first and foremost, we need that biblical context in order to take that message and appropriate it in a, in a biblical and faithful fashion. And I think that brings us right back to what Andrea was talking about at the start of this of the question of how can we make this practical and how does this relate directly to addiction? Right, Andrea? Right. I, would, I was going to say, based on listening to you, Yuri, a good example by analogy would be you go to a doctor with a pain in your shoulder And if the doctor tells you, well, you shouldn't have played football 20 years ago, and if you had really been responsible, you probably wouldn't have that pain in your shoulder. Well, now the person knows that football may have caused the pain in their shoulder, but they still leave with the pain in their shoulder. So the first thing you have to do is really listen to and understand what the person is saying. But then if you're going to provide a remedy the doctor needs to have a foundation. The doctor needs to be able to say, okay, well, what are you doing now that aggravates it? And let's talk about what is and where you want to be and the journey. But I would think that without a foundation of biblical law and understanding that the kingdom of God operates most effectively when people know and apply the law, that people are left floundering and Maybe in a lot of cases, just the symptoms are being addressed rather than the underlying issues. You're absolutely right. I, I think that's a that's a, a, a fine way of, of, of summarizing this kind of dimension of Christian counseling that I think we assume in many ways that people that we're counseling are already aware of the kinds of interpretive skills we receive through our training and our background, but a lot of them are not. And so there is a kind of Uh, how should I phrase it, an anthropological 101 lesson we need to offer of those who are counseling so that they understand first and foremost their their condition, what their needs are before we move on. Because I think many times Christian counseling assumes too much and there's more principial work that needs to be done. Yeah, an example is it's not uncommon in the role that I hold in terms of my writings and and podcasts that I've done and things like that. Well, people will come to me with problems in their marriage, let's say. How do I deal? I want to leave my husband, you know, and they give me all these reasons why. Well, oftentimes they're looking for someone who agrees with them as opposed to someone who's going to say, can I ask you some questions? And so when I ask the questions, I say things like, 
well, before you were married, did you and your husband engage in premarital sex? Yes. Mm. Were you both Christians at the time? Yes. Okay, so let's talk about breaking God's rules, and now you want to break another one of God's rules, and, and, and whatever it is. And interestingly enough, a lot of people decide that I'm not their counselor. Mm. <laughs> They're going to go find somebody else because I really want to talk about them and their relationship to God as opposed to, oh, yeah, I think you should leave the guy. Right. That's exactly right. So it's, it's not uncommon for a pastor, for example, to have somebody in their office and to hear them say, well, you're the fourth pastor that I've, been, that I've seen over this issue in the last 10, 20 years. And so when you begin to dig into it, you realize in the end of the day that pastorally or in, um, you know, uh, brother, sister, sister, the sister counseling, what you see over the years and what you see just experientially is that people come at least in two ways to seek help. They either come with a blank piece of paper saying, pastor, I need your help. My friend, I need your help. Or they come with a paper that's already full of what they expect us to say and with a signature line at the bottom that they expect us to sign. And so they either come expecting us to reiterate what they believe to be true already, or they come expecting to find help. And what I see most often, I don't know what your experience is, Andrea and uh, Steve, is that a lot of folks come already with a preconceived notion of what we ought to say. And what they really want is just an affirmation that their strategy is the right one, but they need our signature in the bottom. Oh, totally. That's a great way. So oftentimes, once I ask questions, and I always will say, I'm going to only ask questions, and I'm going to stop you once I feel that I understand what you're saying, because people then want to say what he did, what she did, whatever, and, and it's like, I, I'm not interested. I, I got the picture. Okay, what is it you would want from me? What is it you want? Mm. And a lot of times, that stymies them, because they were hoping I would just say, oh, you should do this. And so I believe, in, and you can confirm this, Yuri, good counseling isn't thinking for the person who comes to you. Good counseling is helping the person who comes to you think biblically. Mm, yeah, lovely, lovely said. Okay, so let's, let's get a little more practical then. We've talked about the, the desire, the need for Christian counseling. How do we distinguish when it's appropriate to, to see our pastor or to see a professional? Now, obviously, there are, are certain crises that would signal the people they need to see a counselor or a pastor. But what would you say if, if somebody were to come to you? What kind of situations are you sending them to the church or situations where you're sending them to a specialist? Is this a part of every Christian's life or is this only for you know, people with terrible addictions uh, what would you, how would you describe the pathway into Christian counseling and how relevant it is to everyday Christians? Well, you know, I, I, I'm of the, of the philosophy that I think everybody needs to see a counselor at some stage of life. And that might be, of course, a, um, a pastor or, and I think that's, you know, one of the things I try to do it. I'm sure you do as well, Steve, as a pastor and Andrea uh, with, uh, at, a, at a local level. I think we all try to uh, minister to people. I mean, you know, you, coffee meetings, is never ultimately just about coffee. It's about the human soul and what the human is experiencing. And so um, I think all these things are a part of that. So I think in one way, we're all in need of counseling. I think the Bible makes that explicitly clear. But the other, the other dimension of that is I think that there ought to be, and I'm, I'm be a bit more practical here, I think there ought to be a kind of network of pastors. I think in many ways we find ourselves to be sort of, uh, you know, sole leaders of our little kingdoms that we establish. And we forget 
that God has put us in, in a community with gifted people. And so if there was a, a lady in my congregation that I think uh, needed a kind of help that I, as a man, would not be able to provide, and if Andrea lived five miles down the road, I would uh, be able to pass on, Andrea and I would have an understanding, be able to pass on Andrea's you know, phone number, and there can be some. So I think we need to be more aware of what exists in our surrounding and the kind of gifts we have in the church itself so that we are um, working together rather than attempting to develop our own little kingdoms. The second dimension of that, which I think is uh, maybe a bit more controversial, but I, I think it's very important that local pastors are aware of good uh, Christian professionals outside of our local congregation, people who do this for a living, which means that they have received a, a plenty of training in fields that none of us have invested ourselves in, and in fields with, you know, whatever, however you want to phrase it, whether it be mental health issues, uh, mental conditions, um, if you want to use a language or not, of bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, things that, whether you want to use those terminologies, I think are very evident, not just scientifically, but experiential in our own lives. And so I think it's, it's important for us to be aware. And so I'm in favor of a kind of synergy that, you know, over the years we've had folks in our congregation, other congregations who needed to see somebody who'd be able to provide um, some help that I couldn't provide, perhaps to uh, prescribe a kind of a medication that I don't have the skills nor the knowledge nor the ability uh, to do. And so I think uh, I've, I've often asked in the, que- in the, in the process, if a, a member of my congregation, for example, is seeing a, a trained psychologist, whomever he may be, I've asked that psychologist if I could be a part of those sessions. And the reason I do these things is because I want to make sure that my parishioner is aware that the psychologist ought not to have the last word, but that there is a synergy, that at the end of the day, all things must go back to the local church and how the local church applies the grace of the gospel to these lives. And so I, I, I like that synergy. I think you have to be very qualified. I don't want to give examples here because every situation varies. You have to be very cautious to whom you send your people. But anyone who is open to having a minister involved in the process is someone that I have, at least that's my principle, someone that I have some kind of uh, relationship with, I have some kind of trust that they're not purposely attempted to deceive my parishioner, but work in, in a kind of, kind of harmony with, with a pastor. So I think those are the kind of two ways I think the Christian church can begin to look at their, their endeavors in, not in isolation, but in a kind of harmony and synergy with other kinds of ministries in your environment. And there, of course, certain cities like, uh, you know, some cities near Philadelphia has an abundance of ministries that are available there, like CCF. And so these are helpful, too, but not every town has that, uh, that luxury. If I might interject, I think that your description of building a network is really important. And I'll go back to a health example If a person suffers from diabetes or had a heart attack or whatever it is, the approach to getting them healthy again may include medication, but it will also include lifestyle changes. It might mean going to see a nutritionist. It might mean going to somebody who is a physical therapist or whatever it is. And somehow or other in that context, nobody has this idea that somebody else is stepping on each other's toes Since the goal is to help the individual improve in some way, they actually probably help each other out in a way that's even hard to quantify because 
there are side effects, for example, to medication. So if somebody works on diet and exercise, maybe you can reduce the medication so that you don't have those side effects. So I really like the idea of a synergistic approach, but making sure for the, especially the person you refer that the Bible is going to have the final word. That's right. And it's also a matter that uh, having that proper network prevents some of the abuses we see in, in counseling. You know, we still have to obey what our Lord says in you know, Matthew chapter 18 of handling conflict uh, in a proper way among brothers and, and according to the Lord's prescription. And so uh, some people will use you know, counseling or, or their pastor in these wedges of relationships in their favor you know, to put themselves as victims or, or to use uh, their own hurt or, or damage mm-hmm. to undermine the church. And so I think what you're describing as a network and people working together provides a sense of, of purpose and accountability that prevents that kind of situation as well. Right. And it also allows the pastor to have, um, you know, some kind of accountability too. You know, this is, uh, this is mutual accountability. I think uh, in many ways, pastors getting trouble in the situations I have seen because they really thought that they knew their Bible so intimately well, and they knew the human psyche so intimately well, they felt like they were the end all. And so I'm trying to at least counsel other pastors to fight against that tendency to think that they are the the sole interpreters of someone else's reality. That's right. Well, you've said that you think that most people, or all people, I think you said, should see uh, a counselor at some stage in life. And so some point in your marriage or premarital counseling or spending time with your pastor just to grow as a Christian. But do you think that there are times, there are certain situations that are so impactful or so traumatic that it's required to see a counselor? Some things that come to my mind are like infidelity or, or sex abuse. Do you think that there are certain situations that you have to take to your pastor and to a counselor and work on beyond just you and yourself or you and your wife? Yes, yeah, certainly. I, I think the most uh, clear example of this, I think, is has to do with probably an area that I'm a bit more aware than other other fields. The area of of sexual abuse, uh, Steve, which is you know a kind of a plague in the Christian church. There was a time when we could say, "Look, it's it's all there in Rome," but now I don't think the Protestant community can use that excuse anymore because it's uh, proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that um, ab- abusive men. Uh, which the majority are, find the local church as a kind of a headquarters to operate their sinful and, uh, I might add, demonic uh, tendencies. And so and that, what that says is that uh, the Christian church is ill-equipped to handle sexual abuses in many ways. And I think without this kind of harmony between the local church, so we have the, we have the, the great and powerful tool of discipline and excommunication. But then Romans 13 gives the government the sword to operating fields that we cannot. Uh, I can guarantee you that in the few experiences that I've come across, uh, men who have abused other individuals, uh, in my heart, I certainly wanted to end that life fairly quickly. But it was not within my prerogative to do so. And so we had to take the proper steps and call the local authorities. And so I think at, at the very least, these issues, issues of sexual abuse need to be very cautiously understood by the church. And the first acknowledgement we need to have is that we have surely failed in that area. And we have attempted to play God and we have failed 
drastically as anyone who attempts to play God has. And we have failed to understand the spheres of authority and of sovereignty that Kuiper talks about that God has established in his world. So that would be a very clear and distinct way out, which I think everyone who's been watching the news in the last five to 10 years is aware of. And I, um, I think that's always an example worthy to bring to our attention. And let me say this. I have heard people say, well, let's keep this within the church. Right. Even though it's clearly, if you're going to look biblical law, it's clearly a violation of God's law, which the civil government would have jurisdiction over. And I hear believers saying, well, you see, because they won't handle it correctly, therefore we shouldn't bring it to the civil authorities. And I point out, isn't that interesting? As a homeschooling family, you're very quick to say that the civil government has no jurisdiction in education. But, of course, they think they do because you're not doing it correctly. Mm. I said, so we have to be working to call the various jurisdictions to their God-given jurisdiction and then work in educating the people in the civil sphere. And I think if we really acknowledged that, like as you said, no matter what your inclination was towards this abusive person, you knew it wasn't your jurisdiction. Well, the only reason you know that, Yuri, is that you know the Bible. That's right. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And I, that's, I think that that's, these are the kinds of things that I think um, the church has, has failed to grasp. And so when, when the church attempts to deal with all spheres, the church becomes a kind of ecclesiocracy, you know? We don't want that. We don't want that. We've seen that poorly done. And, and interestingly, this kind of ecclesiocracy that we've seen tends to happen in churches that have absolutely no kind of hierarchical structure. <laughs> I find that fascinating. They're independent, but yet they act as if they are, you know, as if the pastor is speaking ex cathedra. And so it's, it's very important for the church to realize its role and to ideally, it would be important that the church would have a kind of accountability, other bodies of accountability, so that we're not fully dependent on the wisdom of, you know, let, let's say there's a small congregation of, um, you know, we just planned a church, let's say a small congregation of 25 people with a new pastor there. And that pastor, if he's fully dependent on the wisdom of those 25 people and his own wisdom, um, there, there's a recipe for disaster right there. And so I think the local church needs to be very aware that we were not created alone, that the principle that applied to Adam, I think, also applies to local church. Yeah, that's right. Well, let's talk a little more about some other situations. At the top of this uh, conversation, Andrea mentioned uh, addiction. And I know that this is something you've spoken about uh, in the past, and I'm sure, as I have, you have had experiences where husbands and fathers and young men and old men and some women have come to you and had to confess the sin of addiction through pornography or through various sexual deviant behaviors. How do you as a counselor who are trying to balance the, the call to holiness with the kind of call to counseling, how do you handle these type of things? What advice do you offer to a mother who discovers her 10-year-old son is addicted to pornography? How do you as a church leader get involved and offer counseling for that? Well, you know, the good news is that God tends to, has, has this profound, inerrant ability to make clear what central forms of addictions look like. And the Bible seems to isolate a few of them, at least explicitly, and they are, you know, food, drink, and sex. And you can say everything else kind of stems from these, these three categories. And addiction, of course, adds a level of rebellion, a level of bondage. And I don't, I don't remember precisely who it was, but I think it was Ed, Ed Welch who said that... Uh, 
addiction is a form of distorted worship. And I think that uh, is a very accurate way of, of phrasing that. It's, and so if, if it continues, it becomes a descent into a kind of deeper and deeper idolatry. And so if you've been around people who have forms of addictions, um, you know that there is a continual cycle of lying, of blaming others, of blindness to, to their own sin. They have lost the fear of who Yahweh is. They avoid the, the wisdom of godly people. They don't return your calls. They don't return your text, the text from concerned family members. So that, that conversation happens uh, in two ways. It either happens preemptively, right? And as someone comes to you and says, Pastor, I've been struggling with, with looking at certain images. And interestingly, in, in the question of pornography, for example, it's, it's a very sad reality now that children as young as six or seven years old are being exposed to forms of pornography that were be unheard of in terms of exposure, you know, 30 years ago, but it's the age we live in. That, so there's a preemptive kind of counseling when it comes to these kind of potential addictions. And then what's probably most common is people who have already succumbed to forms of addiction. It might include food, again, sex or drink. And now they're coming to you saying, my life has fallen apart. My wife is threatening to divorce me. What do I do? Of course, it would be lovely. And I think that's part of the pastoral call from the pulpit and from the pew to do a lot of preemptive counseling. That's what we do, right? When we preach the word of God. But I think in most cases, what we're doing is uh, we're ministering to people who are already sucked into some form or, or some form, however long of an addiction. I remember very distinctly, and this has only happened once where I remember counseling a man who said he had been looking at pornography in one way or another for 47 years. He remembers finding magazines under his father's uh, uh, bed uh, when he was 12. And so we often ask the question, what do we do with these kinds of people who have been inundated by so much filth for so long? And so there are, you know, some helpful models out there, some helpful guides. There's some very faithful uh, biblical programs. I don't want to add specific because I think there are so many things available there. But I think we at least we begin to uh, think through these issues and, and explain to that mother whose son has been watching or been exposed to pornography that this is this is going to happen in this world. But the question is now, will that child be surrounded by a kind of wisdom that can saturate his mind with the gospel? Or will that child now be isolated from that wisdom? And what will you attempt now to do? Because the, we, can, we, can take the, we can take the very simple proposition and say, well, we're just going to remove all pornography away from that 10-year-old. But the world we live in is just not that way anymore. And so exposure is almost inevitable. So the question is now, where do we begin in the process of discipleship? And how do we begin? And so I think in these cases, there are certain addictions that require a kind of long-term strategizing that must be a part of the pastoral duty. And I think this is what we do as pastors. There are certain individuals in my church that I meet with, that I've been meeting with on a weekly or monthly basis for several years. In some cases, they're, they're less. But so there are these long-term strategies depending on the, the kind of addiction that needs to be uh, focused on, uh, honed in as a minister. That's right. And these are kind of like your your accountability partners that you've heard about with, you know, every man's battle, things like that. And you're replacing those those bad habits or those bad addictions with uh, food, drink, and, and sex, as you describe it. And you have to fill that void with something else. 
I'm reminded of, of, of Dr. James Jordan, who talks about the church as being the story of you know wine, woman, and and song. And so the the church has a true worship. You mentioned uh, how addictions are related to worship of yourself or worship of something else, a false worship. That the only way to get them out of addiction is to get them into to write discipleship habits. And so having a connection to the local church, I can see how that's very important to that. And to go one step further, I think that usually the first people are going to hear about problems would be friends or relatives. And being able to, number one, let's say you don't have the immediate resource of a counselor to refer to. In this day and age, it's very easy to read good books by Christians who understand man's sin and the corruption of sin and that the problem is man being sinful, not man being human. Mm. You have so many people going, well, I'm only human. Well, that's not an excuse because Adam and Eve prior to their fall, they were only human. They were never God. Their problem was they decided that they should be like God. That's right. First and foremost, you have to be able to, identify who that person is and you could and and by telling them look there are answers out there mom i'm thinking of the mom who contacts me and there's been more than one start educating yourself on that you become the student of the authors who are helpful and then maybe you'll be able to share this with your pastor or share this with the elders of your church and in the process yeah you're still going to have to deal with your son but other mothers' sons will have greater help in the future as you create this network, and then you can become a resource for someone else. That's exactly right. I think this is, this is a conversation for another time, but I think this is a very important role that I think women have in the local congregation, that pastors need to be aware that even though we would um, uphold certain ideals that I think are based on the biblical model of who should be leaders of the church— men. And at the same time, men need to be very aware that there are certain circumstances that would require wisdom in the local congregation from women. I mean, the Bible speaks about this quite a bit in Titus, but using the the wisdom of older women. And so I think these are things that the pastor needs to have at his disposal. He needs to say, here are three ladies who are equipped, who have a history of godliness and faithfulness and repentance, and who have uh, shown through their lives to be faithful servants. And so, again, this this helps the minister realize that he's not the answer to all things, but that he is dependent on this community around him. And I think that's just, a, and I'll stress that again, I think this is a very crucial dimension of church life in general. And to make the point about these Titus two women, and I have the benefit of having taught a lot of women over the last 20 years biblical law who then go on to be those women in their congregations that being able to have a certainty that Jesus is sufficient but he's sufficient but you can't continue to be at war with him and then expect his sufficiency and so being able to have the hard conversations and, and, and identify for someone, okay, you want me to tell you it's okay for you to leave, but have you examined whether or not you have been the kind of wife that God calls you to be? Mm-hmm. So it's, we're not a bunch of yes women. <laughs> we're a right. bunch of women who believe that, number one, Jesus is sufficient and that, that there's no, nothing that's impossible 
to rectify. So it's not that, well, I guess I have to go to my grave being addicted to pornography or food or alcohol or smoking or whatever it's going to be. No, if do you believe that Jesus is sufficient and hmm. and the counselor, whoever it is, whether it's an informal counseling or a pastor or a actual Christian counselor, if they don't believe that people can get better, I'd say those are the people to stay away from. That's exactly that's exactly right. I mean, we we need to establish very early on in any counseling endeavor that God is for our counselees. He is for them and that he's not waiting in the alley to destroy their lives. He's waiting in the alley to restore their lives. And there's a language I think I've heard from uh, Thomas Watson who said that that God looks upon the weak with the eyes of pity as a father looks upon his child who is sick. And so I think, I mean, imagine, all of us are, are parents, imagine how we feel when our children are deeply sick or in the hospital. There's just that tenderness that comes out naturally. And that's the kind of tenderness I think we need to have as, as people who minister to one another, who encourage one another to live the gospel and to establish an orientation of hope from the beginning so that if anything comes out of that first counseling session, which is a very important session, the first counseling session, that that person leaves there saying, I believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ has something to say to my condition. I don't know what, but I believe it does. And I think that's a wonderful first step in any process of healing. Well, very good. And Yuri, I'm so thankful for all of your work on this. And is there a place in particular where people can go to find you if they want to follow up with you or find more resources? Well, I think um, I, I tend to write little things that I think are helpful at a more popular level. I, I'm not, I don't have a degree in counseling, so my pastoral wisdom comes from as the, the richness of the biblical text and kind of anecdotes of things that I've experienced in the last 10 years. And so believe it or not, I add a lot of things to my Facebook page. I have a website, uh, yuribrito.com, where I try to add some insights into parenting skills and how the law of God speaks to all areas of life. So I would say those two places, um, which I think anybody can visit, would be a great place at least to begin a conversation and uh, to begin getting a sense of how we can help one another live faithfully to this gospel call. Okay. And if, if somebody who's listening to this right now, whether it's a, you know, a mother or, or a husband or an individual, and they're struggling with uh, something and they want to get connected with a, a Christian counselor and they're not in Pensacola, where would they go to, uh, to find someone for help? Is there a network of places that exists anywhere for them to, to look for help if they needed a counselor? Well, I would say the, um, the first two that come to mind, uh, Steve, would be at the ccf.org website. I think they have a map of counselors around the country, and that's a good place to go. And the other one is where I got my, my certification, which is ABC, which is the Association of biblical counselors, they also have a kind of map that has little, you know, that's pinpointed different areas around the country where you can get some, uh, where other counselors who have gone through the same process of training are available. And again, it's one of those things where, you know, every counselor is unique. And so uh, I pray that even in that need, again, we have the great gift of technology. We can do a lot of counseling online these days, uh, people who are willing to meet. And so, and hopefully local pastors are able to point people to other pastors who are trained and equipped in certain fields. So the, the, we, we live in a country where God has provided us a lot of wonderful resources, and it's time that the local church begins taking advantage of those. Very and good. I would add that 
YouTube. <laughs> you find yes. the name of an author that we've used the name Ed Welsh a number of times in this discussion. Well, he's written a host of books on a lot of different subjects that are extremely practical and that people experience. But he's also gone a step further and he had recorded talks, some as short as 10 minutes, some as long as an hour and a half, two hours where he was speaking at a conference. And you can learn a ton that way. Mm. And once you get a couple of authors and you've read their books and then you see who they reference in their books, as you mentioned, Jerry, sometimes they're referencing other people who don't necessarily have a reverend in front of their name. Right. So you can learn a lot. And if you become discerning, you can say, like you mentioned, Jordan Peterson, I think you did, Steve. You know, he has a lot of common sense things, but then he says this thing. Well, right. you know what? I can decide that that's not going to be the thing I operate on, but I can benefit from his insights and then replace them in terms of a biblical framework and we'll see that they fit. Very good. Well, Yuri, we're so appreciative of your work and your time with us today. I hope that our, our listeners will follow up with you and follow what you're doing. And Andrea, if there's anything from the Chalcedon Library that you could mention for folks to read on this. Certainly. Well, you mentioned it, The Cure of Souls, where Rush Dooney goes into, it's, it's not a small book. It's, it's, a rel- it's not a huge book like the Institutes, but it's, it, it's a good-sized book where he goes into the aspects of what all people are truly looking for. And instead of offering people a Band-Aid, giving them the elixir, so to speak, of Jesus Christ, that is, as I said, sufficient to cure our souls. Well, very good. And as always, you can uh, send us an email at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. And I look forward to uh, continuing our conversations in the future, Yuri, and we'll continue to pray for your work there. Thank you, Yuri. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.